0: me to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to give you the Bible that you receive if you don't have one, but just raise your hand. It should be marked with Nehemiah 3. If you're here and you say, hey, uh, you mentioned Palm Sunday in your prayer and today's Palm Sunday, shouldn't you be doing a Palm Sunday message? Some years I do, some years I don't. Uh, There is no Bible verse that says, thou shalt do a Palm Sunday message. You will not find one. Matter of fact, you won't even find the term Palm Sunday if you look in the Bible. It is a church tradition. It's a good one. It's one that I like. And some years I do, but this year I felt like the Lord was saying, just finish chapter 3 of Nehemiah. So what is Palm Sunday going to... uh, Is there going to be any mention of it? Yes, next Sunday I will roll that in. Because what happened was there was an entire Passover week. And so next Sunday when we talk about the resurrection... I will look at it the perspective uh, from the perspective of that entire week. Jesus came at the beginning of the Passover and He gave his life near the end of the Passover. And so that is what we'll look at next Sunday, and, and that may be new information to people that haven't grown up in church or haven't sat under Bible studies. And maybe it is a reminder to you, but uh, today, uh, I'm happy that it's Palm Sunday. I'm happy that Jesus came in, but I feel like that he wants me, at least today, to finish Nehemiah chapter 3, and then we'll be ready for chapter 4 after uh, Easter Sunday. So next Sunday, uh, I'll kind of cover a little bit of what took place today from the perspective of the entire week. Uh, But if your Bibles are open, we'll finish Nehemiah chapter 3 today, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses uh, as we've been doing, not the whole chapter. You can read the whole chapter, I encourage you to do so. Uh, But starting in verse 12, one verse that I'm very partial to, and here it is, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 12, and next to him was Shalom, the son of Heloahesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Manon and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate and so on. It goes from there, and I'll move over to verse, uh, let's take a look at verse 22 And after him, the priest and the men of the plain made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hesub made repairs opposite their house. And after him, Azariah, the son of Maasaiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. Down in verse 28, uh, beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Amir, uh, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemamiah, The son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. I think the Holy Spirit just gave me the ability to read these at the moment that I read them because these names are hard sometimes. But you get the point. Shalom was with his daughters, and these other men made repairs in front of their own homes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for again your word. May it fall not on ears that are deaf or not listening, but, Lord, ears that are soft. And hearts that are soft. And Lord, shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus here this morning, we pray. Anoint this time. Anoint my lips for your service. Lord, remove me from the equation other than to speak on your behalf. May your word be exalted. May I decrease greatly and everyone here as well. But may we hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've examined the gates recently and these spiritual parallels that the gates represent. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, but today we turn our attention back to the people, because we are people, aren't we? And back to the engagement of building these walls and these gates, specifically the attention to and the protection related to their own homes that correspond for us to the spiritual attention and conditions and our homes and in our lives because we have literal homes, right, made of two-by-fours and concrete and sheetrock, but we also have spiritual homes individually and our families. Now, we're reading here the historic record of the walls and the gates and the workers, but what we're really studying is the plan of God as it relates to hearts, to lives, and to the will of the Lord. This is what we're really concerned with, the hearts. You know, God's not as concerned. He does great things with mortar and walls and buildings, but what he's really building up is people, right? That's really what this is all about. Yes, there really were these literal walls, but it's also, and more importantly, about God literally building up the lives of people. And we're going to look at three things this morning from the text on building up the home. And this first one we'll take a look at this morning is to relate and to model. And you know, I usually have a three-point outline, something you can follow, something you can digest, something we can apply in our lives. But the first thing we want to look at this morning is to relate and to model. If you're in any position of leadership, parenting or other, uh, you're going to have the responsibility to relate to people, but also model Jesus to people. That's why we've been called. The girl cutting my hair, she was relating to me many years ago, but she also modeled Christ to me. And so I don't know who taught her specifically some of the things, but but I thank God that she was doing that even in that setting. So no matter where you're at, we're able to live this out, and God wants us to do it. But what can we learn here? What can we learn uh, from... Uh, This gentleman in verse 12, Shalom, we're going to take a look at his life. And I just want to draw your attention uh, to the two places on the wall that represent the verses that I just read. Uh, Shalom and his daughters, make sure I've got this on. My laser working right here. That was the gate or the walls that they were working on. Then the other men in front of their homes was right up in here. So you can see those two places. Shalom and his daughters were working here. The other men were working on the opposite. So one on the west side One on the east side, him and his daughters, but also these other men in front of the homes. But back to to verse 12, and next to him was Shalom, the son of Heloahesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. What can we learn about Shalom in just this one verse? Well, he was working in coordination with others, not just his section of the wall, but if you look at the map there, he was working in concert with all the other sections. All of this was happening like a symphony, right? You have the, you know, the violins over here. You have the wood, woodwinds over here. You've got that big instrument that I don't know what it is over here. You know, all those different things. And they're, but they're working in concert with one another. All happening, but it's working together. So he was in coordination with others. He took responsibility for a specific section, Isn't that interesting? He had a specific section. You have a specific section in life, responsibilities. But he also was completely committed and accountable to a specific session. A lot of people won't, uh, you know, I don't sign up for anything because that means I'm going to be committed to it. That's true. But God's asked us to sign up for things, to become accountable, to say, I will hold this part of the wall he was. Before that, he had half the city, city as well. Uh, his daughters, well, they were serving and assisting with him. We can see that. This is all in the same verse. We're still in verse 12 here. All of this is in the same verse. We know his daughters were assisting him. And lastly, he had taught them, oh, one other one, he was a leader, a significant leader because he had half the city, right? Half the city was under his leadership. So he was a leader but obviously a leader in his own home as well. And lastly, he had taught his daughters to make repairs because they were working as a team. I love teamwork, don't you? Don't you really love effective team? That's why I love watching documentaries about special forces, teamwork, the German Shepherd working with the SEAL team, all all that coming together, right? All of the, the night vision goggles, all of those things. I like sports because of teamwork. I love effective teamwork. I love teamwork because God loves teamwork. He loves two people coming together and becoming one flesh, called husband and wife. That's teamwork. He likes taking 12 tribes that didn't always get along and making them a unified nation, doesn't he? He likes taking 12 disciples from various backgrounds pulling them together, training them for three years, and making them one church. This was the beauty, not just that one church, but Jesus made them an advancing church that multiplied greatly. And this was the beauty of Nehemiah's leadership, inspired by God. It went from fragmentation and stagnation to unification and effective participation. That's what it was. It was a stagnated, fragmented group of people that became a united group of people and did very effective work by participating under the guidance of this man, but hit this man by the Lord. And all these different people bringing diverse skills, diverse abilities, levels of experience. Some people with very little experience, I'm like, hey, what's a trowel? Right? Other people, very skilled and gifted at it, and seeing it work together and then far exceed any expectations. Shalom and other men, they carried this single vision to do what? Restore. The single vision was to restore. And what God ends up leading is a 52-day miracle we've been talking about. A 52-day miracle. Miracle. Leaders inspiring other leaders. Shalom was that kind of leader. He was inspired because Nehemiah was that kind of leader. And leaders inspire other leaders. Remember that Nehemiah had at the outset, remember he had a few men with him. Remember that? He had a few men with him that scouted the city in the dark, in the night. He had a few other men already there. Great victories and advances, they begin with men... And women in relationship, you have to have other people with you. No, no one's a one-man band. But first, that relationship, Nehemiah first had his relationship where? With God. God gave him, the, but then he put other men with him. That relationship, if we don't first have the relationship with the Lord, then the relationships that we build with one another aren't going to be what God intends them to be anyway, but... We have to have it with the Lord, but then with one another. I want to have a great walk with the Lord, and that really helps my walk with my wife. And it helps my walk with our kids, and so on and so forth outside the home. And this is, of course, imperative in the family. Parents in growing relationships with Christ and then deepening relationships with their children. Our relationship with our kids should grow. Over the years, not get worse, I have, can't help how, how many people I've had over the years tell me, they find out I have girls, all girls, they would say, oh, wait till they're teens. Now that I have teens, they say, I'm so sorry. I'm like, why? <laughs> Just because you have resigned yourself to doom because the world says, hey, when they're teens, why? I don't see that in the Bible. We can believe what the Word of God says. By the way, this deepening relationship, kids don't always get the full value of it, though, do they, parents, right? They don't always get the full value of relationships and love. Um, This is a true conversation that took place between a mom and her young son, I think about four or five, and it was recorded on website Little Hoots. And here's the mom. She said, true story, good morning, do you need a hug? The kid said, Actually, I need pancakes and not this hug. Right? Kids don't always want the love relationship. They just want what's in your wallet, right? Or what's in the fridge or what's in the pantry and all that kind of stuff. But we love beyond all that, right? We, we work through that to show them that the relationship is better than the pancakes. By the way, God, we're that way with God. God says, "Do you want a hug?" And say, "No, I just want pancakes." God says, "I want to give you more." Jesus said, "I have food of which you do not know." I don't really want that food. I just want whatever I can get out there. So we have to invest in that relationship with Him. But uh, at a young age, and at each new stage as our children grow, we have to keep building that relationship. And relationship building and unity takes time, doesn't it? Takes time. But we have this small team here of Shalom and his daughters. Shalom, as I mentioned, he's a respected leader. Half the city is under his jurisdiction, clearly has shown himself as a leader. People can recognize it. He's modeling both a visible relationship with his kids, but also modeling a cohesiveness that that his family not only listens to him, but can work together as a team, and Dads, how about a shout-out for a dad that's taught his girls how to make repairs? I mean, is that not good or what? You know, and I meet... I'm embarrassed when I meet uh, dads that have taught their girls how to change the oil. and stuff. I haven't done that yet. There's things, you know, so... And it's probably never going to happen. But, but there are things, you know... Here's how the mower works. Here's where the gas goes. You know, there's a few things that I've taught along the way. But it's good to see these, uh, this dad and daughter. So if you have daughters... Don't think there's limitations here. They're they're being used the same way as other dads and their sons were being used in that same setting. Now, these daughters working together on the wall inform us of a few possibilities. uh, Aside from exactly what type of repairs, we don't know exactly the type of work they did. We know they did some repairs. We don't know exactly what the work is. But uh, we could surmise a few things looking at the fact that they were making these repairs, A, we could, we could guess that they were A, perhaps obedient to their father. And by the way, a lot of times in the Bible it says father, it's inclusive of the mother to say you could actually insert parents often. Not every case, but, but a lot of cases that's exactly what's infer, inferring that you had the parents here so obedient to their parents. We could, we could surmise that they were obedient to their parents. B, we could guess that they saw the same urgency as their father, that this was an urgent project, that this was worthy of 52 days. They didn't even know how long it would take. Just getting after it and focus nothing on that. Everything else had to take a back seat to the repair job. We could see that they perhaps had that same sense of urgency. Uh. Three, or C, they enjoy doing construction and repairs. Possible. Some of you say, that's not possible. There's no way anyone would enjoy that. Well, some people like that stuff. Some of you love carpentry and construction and stuff like that. And you actually think it's fun to D- D-Y-I or DIY or whatever it is. So do it yourself. You know. I think it's fun for someone else to do it. Just... Just get it done, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> or maybe all of the above. They were obedient. They saw the urgency and they actually enjoyed that type of thing. Now, I will say this: the longer we serve God, he gives us a a taste and a desire for things we used to not like to do. We actually send, wow, oh, it, it actually feels good to go help people. I used to think that, oh man, I gotta get off my couch. But I think when you look at the context of chapter 3, take, for example, uh, back with, in verse 5. Remember the Tekhoi uh, nobles? They did not put their shoulders to the work. When you look at the context of chapter 3, and like I said, verse 5, uh, Nehemiah calls out their refusal to help. It indicates to me that the daughters are mentioned here by the Holy Spirit as more of a commendation for their effort that their mention specifically called out for a noble work that they did and the right heart attitude. We don't know that for sure, but I believe that the context leans in that direction, that their hearts were in the right place, that these were not kids saying, yeah, I'll help. I won't get an allowance, right? That's not why they were helping. You know, because you can get someone to do something they don't want to do, and the whole time they say, I'm doing it, but if I didn't have to, I wouldn't do it. But I believe that their heart was in the right place. We can't know definitively, but I think it's a safe assumption that their participation was that of obedience, recognition of this urgent need, and very likely what I would call enthusiastic involvement. When you want people to be involved in anything in life, you want it to be enthusiastic. It's the NCAA tournament, March Madness going on. You know, the coaches want their teams to be enthusiastic, all all in giving every ounce of energy they got. And that was what was happening with, I believe, Shalom and his daughters and these other servants that were working on the wall. Now, parents, think of the application of our kids working and contributing in the home. Obediently. We'd want that, right? Seeing and understanding the value of their contribution. And it's one thing for you to tell them that, But when the Holy Spirit shows them that, you get a force multiplier and effort. And when our kids have their own walk with Jesus, it's a totally different ballgame, isn't it? Think of the application of our kids working in the kingdom of God and serving Christ. Generally speaking, and there's always exceptions. There's exceptions to everything. But generally speaking, as we serve and follow Christ, our children will follow I said, as, if ours is sincere, theirs will likely be sincere. If ours is hypocritical, they will see that, and they'll see right through it. Many kids don't follow Christ later in life, not because they didn't go to church, because their parents went to church, but the church wasn't in their parents. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit wasn't in there. It was just something, yeah, yeah, we need to go because that's like your fire insurance or something. If our walk in leadership is Christ-like and Christ-led, I didn't say perfect. There's no one in here that's going to lead a perfect. If you read the Bible, none of the dads in the Bible did it perfect. None of the moms in the Bible did it perfect. In fact, good leaders admit failure. Hey, kids, we we blew this one. We blew an opportunity. We got lazy in our spirit, whatever else. We've neglected to lead. But if our leadership is Christ-like and Christ-led, Our kids are far more likely to walk in a way that's Christ-like. Not 100% guarantee. Every soul, every heart makes a decision. But it's far, 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 far more likely. And this applies to all areas of maturity and godly character. I think Shalom's daughters see in their dad and, and their mom as well. This kind of character that says, we want to follow that. We want to put our hand to the plow. Josh McDowell said, We do not develop habits of genuine love automatically. We learn by watching effective role models, most specifically by observing how our parents express love for each other day in and day out. Modeling and teaching is a consistency. It's a consistency. And that's really good news for us because there's times where we have patches where we didn't quite do it as well as we should, but over the long haul, that's what people will remember. Consistency, consistently growing, consistently leading. This is true in the church as well. Those who are children in the faith, those who are younger in the faith, they learn to love. They learn to serve. They learn to share their faith. They learn to encourage other people. They learn to repair. They learn to help. They learn to pray. They learn to worship From those that are mature in the faith. From the fathers of the faith. From the mothers of the faith. Isn't that true? Even this church, this is a family. This is our big living room here. And so younger people in the Lord learn from the mentoring, the modeling, the discipling of those that are more mature in the faith. But it doesn't stop there. One of the reasons that I can preach the gospel as a pastor I would be 100% disqualified if I was not a pastor in my home. If you ever see, you know, someone who has zero control in their own home spiritually, they're not, at that time, they're not in any way qualified. And it doesn't mean that you can't have a prodigal. I'm not, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about that you're not ministering in your home. Does that make sense? Do you understand the difference? If you are ministering the gospel in your home, you're leading. You're not living a hypocritical life. You're serving Christ. You are presenting the Lord. You could still have someone says, hey, I don't want this. I'm going to walk away. That's not the point. The point is, if you don't practice what you preach in the home, you could never be an elder or a deacon or a pastor or any other thing. The Lord, Paul made this clear. He said, first take care of the home. Then once that's secured then go serve in the house of the Lord. But it doesn't stop in our own home. God didn't tell me or you, hey, you know what, here's what I want you to do. Have the most spiritual home on planet Earth. But everybody else out there, you don't have time for them. Matter of fact, Jesus had a specific parable about two religious leaders that didn't have time for a man that was falling on the road, right? He didn't say, you know what, you two guys... Because you have such great spiritual home, you don't need to worry about people that are falling apart outside your house. This is not, even though God wants us to work on our home, the title of this message is to start where you are. That's a starting point. Get the home right so your home, like Shalman's daughters, can go out and rebuild. Did you notice that they were not in front of their house? They might have already secured that area. They were at a place of maturity they could actually go work on other people's needs. This is why Paul called Timothy a son of the faith. It wasn't his biological son, but Paul was investing in people. He had said, All right, this, well, Paul didn't, we don't even know what family he had, but he was investing outside the biological family. Tonight we'll have a team go and visit incarcerated youth. You guys that are going in, Patrick and the team, you guys, when you go in tonight, you are building up the walls of people who don't have moms and dads. I can't preach this message to these kids. They'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't have a mom. I don't have a dad. This is great for people who have a nuclear family, but this doesn't apply to me. We, you know, some of you that helped uh, one of our Young and Heart ladies move from one apartment to another a couple days ago, that's working on the home, outside the home, inside the church home. Helping these single parents that desperately need help, even in this church, helping them financially, helping them with work, helping them encourage them, build them up. Once your house is secure, you're ready to go out and there is slews of people out there. I don't know if that's a word or not. But anyway, there's a lot of people out there. I told you in this modern age, you can make up any words you want. I mean, Twitter, it just doesn't matter. You know, just just come up with it. Put it in the lexicon, you know but there's a lot of people out there that desperately need help and we secure our home to help theirs. Now, it's still important. I already covered that, there we go. Let's take a look, we still wanna go back to our own homes for this study because if that's not right, it's not gonna be, we're not gonna be able to go out and help beyond the four walls of this church or beyond the four walls of our home, so let's take a look at the next thing repair and fortify. Verses 28 and 30, I already read them, uh, but look back at verse 28, beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. By the way, we're all called to be kings and priests in the new covenant here. So all all of you dads are priests, and you're called to make repairs in front of your own home. Not only in front of your own, but first in front of your own home. I use the analogy all the time. You're in an airplane, put oxygen on yourself first, So you can help everybody else. That has to be made right. Shalom, the priest, and these other men, they weren't perfect fathers. There's no such thing. But just as they had to make repairs in front of their homes, the physical, uh, the, the homes are important because that's the first line of defense. They would also need to make repairs in their home. Right? Spiritually speaking, in the home, not just in front of the home, but in the home. For some of these, Their families and their leadership may have needed just as much repair as the city walls itself. Some of their lives needed a lot of repair. It wasn't just the city walls. They needed repair. Later in Nehemiah, we're going to see this is indeed the case. Spiritually speaking, there's no perfect homes, and the Lord will identify what needs to be repaired, what needs to be fortified, what needs to be built up, or what is lacking, some are small repairs. It, aren't you glad there's sometimes just little repairs? No, that's not such a big deal. I can do that. I'm glad when I look at a project and say, huh, I feel really important. I can do that one. You know, I see one that I can do. Spiritually speaking, there's sometimes smaller things, minor repairs, some recommitments in our life, but some are bigger and take more time. They're going to take more time for God to work out in us. But whether big or small, we can either run from repairs, we can either run from responsibility, or we can respond to God's grace with a humble resolve. Lord, you can help me. Sadly, not everyone is willing to repair. Not everyone's willing to repent. Not everyone's willing to rebuild. A lot of people say, no, I'm just going to leave it like it is. Imagine a born-again father, born-again dad. Just walk with me on this one. Imagine a born-again father... Let's say he has two kids, ages 8 and 10. He realizes he's fallen well short of discipling his children. He hasn't been reading the Word personally. He hasn't been talking with them about the Word, hasn't been really loving as he should, hasn't been praying, hasn't been sharing uh, the Scriptures with them. Then, on top of all that, he says a couple of things that come out of his mouth in frustration that he now really regrets. At the same time, both he and his wife are so busy with work, so busy with activities, even the kids' activities, that their kids, they don't have that relationship they should. Their marriage isn't as strong as it once was. It's actually weaker now than it used to be. To make matters worse, this same father, and the one area he was really excelling was his career. So he took on a huge responsibility at work, and it all went wrong. He actually failed and was demoted. And now he can't afford the music lessons he promised to the two kids and several other projects he promised to do around the house. He's feeling dejected. The marriage now is even getting more agitated. These kind of things happen in the real world, folks. I just made this scenario up. But these things happen in the real world with imperfect people. Now he's dejected, even a little depressed. Now imagine this man comes to this conclusion. He starts thinking it out. He comes to the conclusion that he's not called to be a father and he's not called to be a husband. In his mind, these infamous words come into his mind. I'm just not cut out for this. You know, I've had people say that. I've heard people say that. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not cut out for this? Are those words coming from God? Certainly not. Yet thousands of men and women in America will say those very same words this year. I'm just not cut out for this. Jesus says in Revelation 1-5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. He says you've got to retrace your steps. You've got to go back to what you were called to in the first place. You got it all wrong. You thought your career was what it was all about. The enemy says, quit. Start over, go, just go do something different. Move to another state. Do a different thing. Get, you know, leave the family. I just was talking to someone recently. I was uh, not in this church, had a conversation with someone in the community, and said, Oh, yeah, I know someone said, Yeah, he just left his wife and kids. He said he had he had gotten laid off and said, I'm done with it. Real world scenario. I, I I came up with this, not related to that, but I was like, It was the Lord, show me these things really are happening. But God says, remember your calling. If you're a parent, you're a parent because God gave children a heritage of the what? Lord. Remember you've received grace and reset the priorities. Satan says, leave it all behind. God says, stop and repair the gates and walls. Satan says, let it be. God says, no, no, stop and repair Jesus said, Remember, go back, get the tape measure out, get the hammer out, get this out, right? It's not always a sin to fail. It's not always a sin to fail. You get demoted at work, that's not necessarily a sin. You might have done the best you could and still failed. You ever failed at something that you tried hard? It's not a sin to fail, it is a sin to bail. It's a sin to bail. Jonah tried to bail. That was a sin. If he went to Nineveh and no one listened, that's not a failure. If Noah preached for 100 years, not a single person gets in the boat, that's not a failure. Noah's in the Hall of Fame. Faith. Faith fame. You know what I mean. Hebrews 11. Not all failures are sin. Sometimes God allows failures to humble us. We need failures. He allows things to reveal in us where we're really at. Jerusalem needed to know they had failed, but God wasn't going to let them stay there. He said, I'm going to help you rebuild. Failure's not a bad thing, but he shows us a lot of times with failure that our priorities are way out of alignment. Your priorities are way out of whack. God said, that's why I let you fail. We have to push everything else aside, and Nehemiah convinced the whole city all of us have to stop everything else we're doing and rebuild and restore. What about everything else? It's all so important. We still haven't had that big event we were planning. Nehemiah said, that's going to have to wait. Understand that these men stopped. They gathered their families. They started repairing areas in front of the wall. They were convinced that everything else had to stop until that was made right. Even important things had to be laid aside. Do you know that there are important things that God says, I know it's important, but you're going to have to wait two years on that we have this instant gratification society now that says anything I think is important needs to be addressed immediately. No. Did you know the vast majority of the things you and I think aren't important? Very little of what we do in this life, percentage-wise, if you took all the hours you live in a week, very little of it is actually important in the scheme of what eternity looks important. Now, we still have to live life, but Nehemiah was... Influenced by the Spirit, everyone caught the vision, saying, no, 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 these things are of greater importance. We don't have time to go do these other things until these things are made right. Here's the deal. What God says is important is actually important. What we think is important doesn't matter. He takes and says, prioritize in this manner. Jesus said it this way, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And everything else will be added unto you. If Jesus is seventh or eighth on the list, everything's all wrong. And your kids will see that, by the way. And your neighbors will see it, and your co-workers will see it. And you try and invite them to church. They might be polite, but deep in their heart they might say, I've watched your life. You don't believe it anyway. Yes, you do. Or you, you might say, I, I do, I do. And they'd say, No, I don't think you do. You talk about the same things I do. You care about the same things I do. You kind of spend your time saying, the only difference is you go to church and I don't. The rest of our life looks exactly the same. The walls in front of the houses being repaired was more important than the decorations on the inside of the house. I like HGTV as much as the next guy. But repainting everything and doing it is not in the scheme of eternity all that big a deal but reinvesting in your kids and your family, that's a big deal. Amen. Repair and fortify Last thing we'll take a look at. Remember and watch. Remember and watch. This isn't in the text, but I'm kind of pulling it in as it relates to our charge as New Testament Christians. The good news is when Jesus has given us the job, to make these repairs, get everything back in order with his help. We don't have to live in guilt over our past failures. Isn't that great? You don't have to live in guilt over the mistakes you made yesterday. You just bring them to the Lord and say, I'm sorry. you, you You ever realize you can never do enough to kind of like, God, this is how sorry I am. You simply have to be sincere in your words. God spoke the universe into existence, and we spoke. Speak back to Him. His words speak to our hearts and we speak words back. Now, our words will, will bear action with it. If we really are sorry for something, we won't go back and keep living the same way. But say, Lord, He's not wanting us to live in guilt over yesterday's failures or last week's failures or last month's failures. Or maybe you still, some of you have guilt over 10 years ago. God says you can finally light a match to it and not live in the guilt anymore. We don't have to live in the past guilt, but we're not to forget how we got there. I, you saw me share my testimony. I have not forgotten how the Lord got me to the cross, but I'm not living in the sin of what I used to do. I can mention it, and it doesn't really have any impact on me anymore because that's not the man I am anymore. The old man, I can look back and say, if I were to do some of these dumb things again, I could end up there. That's, that's good to know. But I don't have to live in the past, but I do want to remember how God has worked in my past. Deuteronomy 9, verse 7 says, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Hmm. God says, Remember, don't forget how you ended up there. Deuteronomy 15, 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. God says, Don't forget that you used to be in bondage. I'm not saying live in the condemnation of the former bondage, but don't forget you once were in bondage. Anyone says you completely forget the past, that's not true. You don't live in the past, but you must remember that God brought us out of a past, and now we have a future. And as these men and fathers repaired and restored the walls and gates, they could remind their children the younger generations even remind themselves here's what led to the walls being breached do you know why the walls fell down kids you know why the gates were burned with fire and later on you know what contributed to the long state nearly 100 years of disrepair and this continuous state of vulnerability we can tell our kids you know why our family struggled for the last 10 years mom and dad blew it but we're not going to do it anymore we're not guilty about it. We don't feel condemned about it. We have a loving Savior that says, that's okay, let's start doing it from this day forward. Amen? That's what God is saying. See, the origin of the collapsed walls, the missing gates, do you know what it was? Idolatry and rebellion. The origin was idolatry. Let me put it in an American term today. Materialism, covetousness, keeping up with the Joneses, that's the stuff that led to it all. Jerusalem fell in love with everything but God. Jerusalem just fell in love with everything but the Lord. And then materialism, pleasure, and busyness became the norm. They were too busy for God. God, I'd love to serve you. And I rode in, I rode in here today and I ride by the soccer fields out there. It's, it's packed. Eight million soccer teams out there. People and Suburbans and Tahoes and all kind, you know, every every sticker on the back of traveling team and all the other stuff and every everyone's so God God will someday say, why did you not spend time with me? I, I would have, but you know, did you see my calendar? We we our weekends we didn't have weekends for you. We used to have Sundays with blue laws and something. Get, we got rid of everything. Everything says nope. That's the way Jerusalem came. Had no time for the Lord. No time for God. All the while, it was common for people to still to have some semblance of temple attendance. They, they a little, maintained a little bit of temple attendance. And God would say, I, I see you tipping me with your time, but your hearts are not in it. You're not in it. Think of church attendance. A lot of people will make sure that they fit some church attendance in in the year, but Jesus really doesn't occupy their hearts. Yes, God used Babylon to topple the walls and storm the gates, followed by the subsequent captivity of Babylon and then Persia. But even even as God brought an enemy against Jerusalem, in essence, the people's rebellion and their own idolatry pulled the walls down themselves. They pulled the walls down on themselves. It's what we would call self-destructing. Self-destruction. That's what they were guilty of. And so these dads and these shalom and these men, as they're rebuilding the walls, I don't believe they just were chiseling away. I believe they were also teaching as they went, saying, kids, other men, younger fathers, this can't happen again, and it won't happen again if we keep our eyes on the Lord. If we don't fall in love, if we move the other stuff aside and focus on these things that God says are important, reinvigorate our love for him. Paul warned of the same self-destruction in writing to the church, a reminder that the desires of this world, rather than a desire for the presence of God, will, I'll say it again, will, 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 will end in disaster. Not might, will. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a stare into many Foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Sinking ships, falling walls. Jesus said it this way, don't build on sand. He's like, your, your walls will fall down if you build on anything but a relationship with me. So we use the rebuilds. We use the recommitments. We use the renewed, uh, renewed priorities. To look back, but ever so briefly, just to look back and say, that's how we, that's how we end up in a destructive state. We're not going to do that. We're going to say, yes, Lord, we hear you. We're, we're, we're soft in our hearts. As parents and as maturing disciples and believers, we can say and we should say, there was a time, and I think everyone in this room, I don't care how mature you are, Lord, you have to be able to admit that there is a time you could say to someone, you know, there was a time when I neglected this gate in my life or this gate in my life. We've been talking about the 10 gates. There was a time when I really wasn't shining a light and being a fisher of men. There's a time where I I really wasn't looking forward to the return of the Lord. There was a time that I really wasn't being filled with the Holy Spirit. We all have, I don't care if you're a pastor or a leader, everyone has to be able to admit there's certain gates, Lord, I've not really been guarding real well. And God doesn't say, now I'm going to throw fire down on you. No, he says, That's, I just want to, you to be honest, and I'll help you. And so we look back just a little bit and say, there was that time, but then my eyes were opened, then my heart was softened. Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, every day of our lives, we make deposits into the memory banks of our children. And when we look back and say, hey, this is where I was, they will remember Our honesty, our integrity, our soft spirit, Uh, modeling a spirit-filled walk, and having a great, loving relationship uh, with Jesus, laughing as a family—that's good. It's important. Just seen my girls teaching me to dance yesterday on something. It was great. You know, we had a uh, girl dads. You know what I'm talking about. That'll never end up on social media, but it does happen in our house at times. Uh, But praying together. All these things are important and valuable, and reminding and warning and relating. By the way, if all you do is warn your kids, they'll tune you out. If all you do is warn them, they will tune you out. But if you never warn them, you've kind of tuned God out. That makes sense? The Holy Spirit will give us that balance before we get way off track, we have to begin to inspect the walls, the spiritual gates in our own lives. We're all to take part in the building process. We're all to be watching. We're all to be maintaining. And that's our self-exam this morning as, we, as I come to a close. How are our spiritual walls around our homes? How's the spiritual walls around your house? How are the spiritual walls inside your house? Are you getting that right so you can actually be ready for the fields that are white unto harvest outside the four walls of this house? How's the relationships? Are you building those relationships with your kids but also with other brothers and sisters in Christ? How's your relationship with Jesus? How's the marriage relationship? How's your relationship with your wife and kids? And are you walking together in the right direction? Are you using your time to help build others up? Those nearby, young believers, struggling believers... There's people here that desperately just want someone to know that they care. We shore up our homes, and we shore up this church home. We'll be far ready to minister to the many lost and disillusioned people that are outside in this community. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again just for your grace. Lord, you don't condemn us or want us living in guilt, but you do want us to be honest. And, Lord, you'll help us to make those repairs. You will actually make the repairs, but then you'll help us to be a part of repairing lives around us. We thank you so much for your grace and your love for us. And, Father, that, that you are the God of new beginnings, that none of us are, in a sense, cut out for this because we're born in a sin nature. But you make us cut out for it because you cut out the old heart and you put in a new heart Renewed by the Holy Spirit. And in a sense, Father, none of us really could be what you've called us to be if it wasn't for your help. But you've called us to it and you've promised to help us. And for that, we say thank you, Lord. Help us to rebuild even the smallest of areas that we might neglect because those small areas, Lord, we know can become big if they're neglected. We need your help and your forgiveness.